0: Psalm chapter 88 is where we are in God's Word this morning. If you would, grab a seat and take your Bibles out for that. We're going to be there and and refer to that passage a number of times, even after reading it this morning. I did neglected to acknowledge that uh, Ben and Leah have family in town. Uh, Both sides of the family, so if you have an opportunity, uh, come and greet them and and welcome them. Uh, Thank them for being here this morning. They take up pretty much the, well, the de facto front row um, this morning. Psalm chapter 88, as we come to our last sermon this summer in in what we have entitled the uh, Pilgriming with the Psalms, and as we are walking through primarily the internal world of the Christian life, the journey, uh, the spiritual journey of the Christian life and the emotions in particular that we experience, we've looked at guilt and waiting and doubt and fear. This morning we come to the issue of what happens when your sorrow simply won't go away? When you have grieved, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, but the grief just doesn't seem to lift. And there's a darkness on your soul that doesn't want to go away. Should I move to the other mic? Okay. And so we come this morning to Psalm chapter 88, which is a difficult psalm. It's been described, as I'll give you some quotes in just a minute, as the saddest of all passages of Scripture. The saddest of all psalms, Psalm eighty-eight. Pick up in the essentially the uh, the prologue or the title, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mihaleth, Leoneth, a Maschil of Heman, the Israelite. Verse one: O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you; incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, which was the place of death in the Old Testament. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves, Selah. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape, and my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed, rise up to praise you? Selah. Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness?" But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long, and they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shove me, shun me. And my companions have become darkness. And that ends the psalm and that ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible words. This psalm is written by a man named Heman. If you're a child of the 80s, not that he-man. We don't know a whole lot about him. He is the founder, though, of the choir that during Solomon's reign and perhaps David's reign were known as the Sons of Korah. They were a musical worshiping guild that sang in the temple courts and wrote praise songs for God's people. He spent his life singing praise songs to God and composing songs, but here here he has composed a song that can be described as nothing short of utter despair. Where almost all the laments of the psalms, they may start out despairing and in sorrow. Eventually, they end up with a tone of hope, a tone of rejoicing. But that's not where this psalm ends. It ends with darkness. In fact, it's kind of like if you've ever heard um, chords, a chord progression on a piano. Like, bum, 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 bum. We, we go used to the laments of the Psalms as having the resolving chord, but there is no resolving chord here. It's like I once heard about a friend who um, would get, get up and he had a piano in their house and he would do that to his sister, bum, bum. and then he'd get up and walk away, and she'd have to run across the house and finish it, bum. and you want David to finish it. See, right around verse 13, it says, But, oh Lord, I cry to you. And you think, here's the turn. He's going to get happy. Oh, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes right back down to the depths, back to 14. Why, O oh Lord, do you cast me away? Why do you hide your face from me? What we find here is this is the dark psalm, and is called the saddest song because of the darkness, the way it ends. This would be like Chris Black coming to us and saying, Hey, guys, I've written a new song. It's entitled, The Darkness is My Closest Friend. Let's all get up and stand and sing. You think, maybe that's actually this, after the series, you might think that might be a possibility, um, the way our worship has gone. But see, this psalmist is stuck, appears to be stuck in the grip of despair. It has a hold of him, so that even when he tries, even when he tries to to speak to himself and, and garner some hope He's crushed again by his despair. Let me just read you some some of the statements that commentators have made about this this psalm. Derek Kigner, who's one of the most famous commentators on the psalm, said this. This is the saddest psalm, the saddest prayer in the Psalter. A guy named H.C. Leopold is an old, he's dead now, but an old uh, commentator said this. It is the gloomiest psalm found in the scriptures, adding, the psalmist is as deeply in trouble when he has concluded his prayer as when he began J.J. Stuart Perone said this this is the darkest and saddest psalm in the Psalter it is one wail of sorrow from beginning to end and so what we have in Psalm 88 is one who is familiar with despair with a sense of hopelessness or especially since the puritans what pastors and doctors of the soul have described as spiritual depression a place in which that doubt just won't go away. When you've waited and you've waited and you've waited, and God says you've got to wait some more. When the death of that spouse or that child's, that loss in your life, which you thought time would heal, it's been two years, four years, and ten years, and yet it still feels like a gaping wound. There is a dark cloud over your soul. What do we do when the darkness just won't lift? What I want to do this morning, though, is show you not only describe the despair that this man is feeling, but also show you the the grace that is here. Because the only way we can face the darkness that so often pervades our lives is for it to meet the sweet grace of God. So let's start with the despair and understand it a little better this morning. Got two points on despair. First, the cry of despair, and then we'll look at the occasions of despair. Three times the psalmist describes himself as crying out to the Lord. That's what he says: crying or calling. Verse one, verse nine, and verse thirteen. And in these cries, the psalmist is communicating his spiritual depression, his despair. And it is—it is a very—if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, it is very similar. And Bunyan draws this experience, the Christian life, out so well and so um, vividly in the account of Christian and a man named Hopeful, who as they are walking along what is called the King's Highway, they, they get off the highway for a little bit because they've grown weary and they take a nap. But when they get up, there is a, they, they, they feel lost, and they're struggling to find their way back because of a great storm, and they're trying to find shelter from this great storm. And so in the midst of this storm, they eventually run into any place they can go, and they find this place of shelter, but they're, they're not sure any longer where the trail is, where the highway is. And so they wait out the storm, they go to sleep again, but when they wake up, they find that they are in the land of a man named Giant Despair, Bunyan was really clear with his allegory: The giant despair. The giant despair grabs them, and he takes them to his castle called Doubting Castle, and there he throws them into his dungeon. And he leaves them without food for four days. And then on Thursday, he, came, he comes in and beats them over and over and over again. Then on Friday, he comes to them and he urges Christian and hopeful that they should just go ahead and kill themselves, and provides them means to do so. And on Saturday he comes back into the jail cell and abrades them for not having killed themselves and said, I am coming back tomorrow on Sunday, and if you are not dead then, I will do the job myself. And what we find is on Saturday night and this Sunday morning, Christian is in the depths of despair. He says this He says, The grave would be easier for me than this dungeon. What is he experiencing? He's experiencing depression that has gone to the very depths, in which the pain and sorrow of the Christian life that he is living has actually brought him to a place where he would say that death is better than this, that he would actually take up the giant's recommendation to take his own life. Perhaps you know how this feels. Yes there can be a despair even for the Christian the spiritual depression in which you have you've have lost God's face and you've have- you no know, longer hear his voice to such a degree that you have lost hope. Now, there is continuums to this depression, right? There is melancholy and mild melancholy, but then it grow, can grow deeper and, and, and more sad in our life, whether it be through death or divorce or some occasion in our life. But as you move along the continuum, there is a relentlessness to this despair that can actually breed you, breed you, bring you to the point of suicidal depression. The descriptions are pretty vivid here from the psalmist's. He picks up very, in a many many very in similar ways as Bunyan does in Pilgrim's Progress. Listen to some of these descriptions from Psalm 88. First, he, he describes despair like dying. It's like death. Verse 3 and 4, I go. it's like going down to the pit. We have people who experience this, Jeremiah and Jonah. Jonah in the pit of the way in which they despair for their lives. They can see no way out of the dark depths that they are in. In fact, they wish death upon themselves. God, would you just take my life, put an end to this. In verse 7 and verse 18, verse 17 as well, we see that he feels like he is drowning, that he is going down to the depths of the sea. And our hearts are driven like this, that life when you're in this kind of despair and this spiritual depression, it feels like you can never get up. Have you ever been caught in an ocean wave? I grew up near the ocean for, for during my childhood, and I remember this occasion in which I was out... It, you call it boogie boarding, but that's, that's an odd term for it. That was a more early 90s term. But they would have a, nice ones that have a really hard bottom on them. And I got caught up in the middle of a pretty tight wave, and I went around, and somehow the boogie board got on top, and the wave came down, crushed the boogie board on top of me. Smacked me so hard that I passed out. And when I woke up, wave upon wave was coming on me. It's like that. If you've ever had the experience of feeling like you're drowning, that's what depression is like. That it's the second you try to stand up. Bam, another one hits you. You stand up again. Bam! Another one hits you. That's spiritual depression. that is what Psalmist is experiencing. A despair here, he despairs for his life. He also says it feels like desperation. It says in verse 2, God, hear my cry. This is a man who is on his knees and is saying, God, where are you in the midst of this? I have pleaded for you over and over and over again, and yet you have not answered. This reminds me of Psalm 42, verse 1, where how does the psalmist describe his spiritual experience? As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Now, we've put that to a really sweet melody, but it, it belies what is actually going on in that verse, what we have there is a deer who's been in the desert with no water. His tongue is, to the, is stuck to the roof of his mouth and somebody who is in despair and spiritual depression is like a deer who may see the water in front of them but it's like, I cannot take one more step. I long for a taste of who you are. This is not, this is not sweet sitting down with your coffee at 6 a.m. Oh Lord, I I long for you. That, no, this is a longing, a desperate longing that this person feels, this psalmist feels. And lastly, despair even feels like a dead end. It feels pointless. Spiritual depression can feel really pointless because in many ways, you despair and you have depression because you can no longer see. Heman raises some serious questions in verses 9 through 12. What in the world, he's essentially saying, does this do for anybody god what good is this doing in my life you see christians are we we almost have this bad habit of just going looking we, we look for these purposes these very immediate purposes god let this happen well this is this is very clearly this is very clearly what god was doing in that well there's a lot of times in which god's purposes are not very obvious in fact, I would suggest that there's a lot of times in which his purposes are not very obvious. And when you stop experiencing his presence, you go, this is, what good is this, God? What is, what is this teaching me? Even if there was a lesson I was supposed to learn, this would be of some sort of good. But he's questioning even that. He's saying, God, this is utterly pointless. So he feels like it's a dead end. He feels like this is death. He's in a place of desperation. Now, what brings us to this place? For the Christian in particular, what are the occasions of such despair in our life? Why do we experience such despair? What are the circumstances that can bring this about? This entrance Christians should feel this way, right? What could possibly bring this into our hearts and our minds? Well, look, first, let me just say this as an introduction to, to walking through this just a little bit. is The fall has affected everything, brothers and sisters. It hasn't simply affected your spiritual state with God. It's affected everything. Everything in this world is broken, and therefore that means your mind is broken, the chemicals in your brain are broken, your emotions are broken, your body doesn't work well. Very often, if you have somebody in your church or in your life who gives very quick and easy answers for a depression or despair, run from them as fast as you can. Here's how. And there's two different ways. There's a very, very religious way in which this is addressed, which is this. You just need you just need to trust God more. Listen, I have this series of five verses. If you would just go memorize these, you would be great. That's one method. It only says, "Well, if you would just it just some way the, the mental understanding of what you what you believe about God or your spiritual state." Others, in a more secular context, they would say, "Here's some medication. You go take this, and you're fine." Not understanding that it's all chemical or it's all emotional without realizing that there is a spiritual dynamic to this. Our answer, because depression and spiritual despair and despair comes upon us for various reasons, the answers for it have to be multifaceted. I won't be able to get into all those answers for sure. In fact, I'll probably sound very much like the religious answer this morning. But that's my job, right? That's the field in which I am addressing Let me just say this, the fall, the reason why we can enter into despair can be varied reasons. For one, the fall has damaged our physical and I would say our genetic world. There is a reason to believe that the psalmist has experienced physical ailments. We see he's talking about some things physically going on here. And there there is afflictions that may actually bring us into places of spiritual depression and despair. If you have had cancer for years and years and years on end, it can do some significant damage. Even there's our bodies and our minds, our souls and our physical beings are connected. They are not disconnected. This is why we have things like postpartum depression. That there is when your chemicals are out of whack and your body is not feeling the way it's supposed to. That they actually can do damage and do have have an effect on your soul and your emotions. If you've experienced any any kind of issue, long term health issues over time. It can depress you and, and deal with your, have a depressing effect on your emotions. Depression can run into families as well. It's not simply through an illness that comes into you physically, but it also can be something that happens genetically, which makes you more vulnerable to this. But not only that, we also see this, that the fall has damaged our relational worlds. And our relational world, our, not just our vertical world with God, but our relational world, our horizontal world, and so often, what we see in the, in the psalmist here is that he feels abandoned by his friends. He mentions this both in verse eight and verse eighteen. You are very apt to feel despair when you are alone. Time, my greatest struggle ever spiritually in which I had my greatest crisis of faith and also felt the, maybe perhaps the most desperate and most dead spiritually when while, was while I was living in Bosnia. And that was, there was actually interesting enough, there was a relational effect and there was a physical effect. I was a Florida kid who was used to getting vitamin D 24-7, 12 months out of the year and suddenly I was in a place called Sarajevo that we joked that it was like from the, from the scene from Narnia that it was always winter and never Christmas. Because we lived in a place in which it started to snow in November, and it snowed in June. June. I got down on my knees and was like, God, what in the world? What are you doing with this? June. So it affected me physically, but it also affected me relationally. I was on a team in which there, only, there was only one other male. We got along fine, but we weren't friends. I was lonely. Listen, a world in which it is me, myself, and I is a world that is ripe for despair. So if you're lonely, you feel relationally separated, that's a reason for our despair. The fall has also damaged our emotional world. May I simply say our spiritual world, our soul world? We are spiritual beings, and when horrible things are done to us or done by us, it can do very long-term damage to our souls. Listen, if you are somebody, it is found that those who have experienced abuse, physical or emotional abuse, particularly in their childhood years, that they have a much more difficult time later on in life, and very often they are far more likely to experience depression, and they often have a very difficult time hearing God's voice and trusting and believing the gospel. They may believe it intellectually, they may cling to it, but the experience and the sense of God's presence is is much more difficult to feel. The same can be said when we we have sinned big time. I I once had a girlfriend who... um, had had an abortion and it was her ability to process the gospel, the wounds from that act in her life had done significant soul damage. She said she believed the gospel, but it was very difficult for her to hear because when you've engaged in such a thing, when you have been faced with such a degree of sin in your life, it is, that is a difficult, that's a guilt that's very difficult to get over. And yes, you can say, I believe in the cross, but man, it can hit you every anniversary, the day in which your child is to be born. It can be crushing. Think about men who've been in the military, who struggle with depression. And we, we think this is a modern concept. You know, in World War II, it, it was said that men would come back and they couldn't even speak about what happened. And in many ways, it was much easier to come back from World War II. There was a community to come back to you were applauded and lauded when you came back. But people would say, that wives would say that for three and four years their husbands wouldn't be able to speak about it and, or maybe could never speak about it, but they would weep in their sleep for years. But we've got the same issue today. You see, most World War II veterans would only see combat for maybe at max two years. So guys in our armed forces now have seen up to 10 to 12 years of constant combat, No wonder they're depressed and killing themselves. When you have had to do damage to the world that we call men in our armed forces to do, and damage has been done to them and to their friends, man, it can have incredible effects. Sins and brokenness of this world affects us deeply. It does do wounds to your soul. It affects you deeply. And lastly, we see that the fall has damaged our spiritual beliefs. Listen, the psalmist here makes it very clear what he thinks is the ultimate reason for his problems. Verse 6, 7, 8, 15, 16, and 18, he points very directly at God and he says, You, you did this. Verse 6, You you have put me in the lowest pit. Verse 7, Your wrath lies heavily upon me. More in verse 7, You have overwhelmed me with your ways. This is your doing, God. Verse 8, you have taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. He wags the finger at the sovereign providence of God and says, this is your doing. This is your doing. The question that the despairing one, though, asked, and that is in many ways, we see that is consistent in the scriptures. And people who understand that God actually is in control, they go, God, this is your doing. Job understood that. And he wags the finger at God, and he accuses him. And in some ways, that is actually appropriate and right, but it goes deeper for the psalmist. Because not only does he question, does he accuse God of doing this, but then he questions God, the goodness of God in the midst of it. Here's, what we find is here, the person who is in, in, in the midst of despair and spiritual depression is, is, may, may not be questioning the generality of God's goodness. They may not be questioning even the gospel, the specifics of it. But they are saying this, God is good, but more specifically, they're saying, I don't believe that God is good for me. God is, his character says he's good, but God really doesn't love me. When I'm stuck in the depth of the giant despair and I know that God can rescue me, he and he doesn't do it, I have nowhere else to go but to believe that God is against me. In fact, he may hate me. Worst of all, we see this in verse 14. This is where the psalmist ends up, right? Verse 13, it seems like he's gonna come out of it. He asks these questions, but then he drives right back down to the worst part of his despair, which is in verse 14. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? What's he saying? A despairing and spiritually depressed person has a part of them that says, intellectually, I know that God's supposed to love me, and God is my father, but there is a persistent voice in their head that says that, it, that he really doesn't love me. I don't feel it. I don't experience it. Sean Lucas, who's a great professor and pastor in our denomination, said this. Despair gets its emotional energy and intellectual cogency when we conclude that God is angry at us and therefore has abandoned us. And that is the conclusion of this psalmist. That because of all this evidence, these horrible things in my life, and that I've cried out to you in this level of despair that I feel, that, God, you're so angry at me that you have hid your face from me, that you have forsaken me, and that you have abandoned me. And that's why he says at the very end, my only companion is the darkness. God, I don't even, you've left me, so I don't even want to think about you anymore. Just let me let me enjoy the darkness while this is all I have left. This is what St. John of the Cross described as the dark night of the soul. This is the grip of despair, believing that God has abandoned you. That even in all his terrible things, all the terrible things, you may say, I mean, God's sovereign. Many of us can say that. But here we believe that his sovereignty is bringing nothing good in my life. It's nothing but death for me. Now listen, there may be very few of you who are in that place this morning. Maybe none of you. I hope none of you. I would wish that I would not wish that upon you. But there is a, let me just communicate this, that if you're on the path to this, if you're experiencing a taste of this, you, there is, if I could plead with you to hear the glimmer of hope in the grace of God, this person, this person who seems to have lost hope in Psalm 88, he is gripped by despair. It has a hold on him. It is a stranglehold that is killing him. But what I want to juxtapose this morning is that God's grip of grace is stronger than the grip of despair. So even when you are at a place like this psalmist, there is something that is holding on to you that is stronger than your your emotional experience right now. Let's look at the evidence of God's grace here. For a little bit. I got two things I want to show you from the passage, because it looks like there's no there's no grace. There's no silver lining to this passage, right? Actually, I think there is, but you have to look very carefully. We know that this psalmist is in the grip of grace for two reasons. For worst is this we see the grip of God's grace in the mere existence of this psalm. But the fact that it exists. There is certain proof that see, as we looked at earlier, that in despair we think that there is no purpose in God's life. In, God's, in the, in the, the struggles, and the suffering that God has brought into our life. Again, there can be no purpose for it other than to destroy me. But what we see in this story is actually the, what we see is that God is working in us. That is the purpose. We may not see it. We may not know the lesson yet. We may not see what God is trying to teach us, but we actually see that in the eternal perspective that God is doing something in us. This, this psalm is very similar to the life of Job. If you remember the story of Job, at the very beginning, Satan goes to God, and he essentially taunts God, and he says this. Job is said to be the most righteous man on the earth, but God, you know what? He serves you because he's rich, his family is he- he's wealthy, he's healthy, his family is there with him. I bet you, if you take all your wonderful peripheral blessings from him, he'll curse you. And so God says, okay, you go ahead. We'll see what happens. And so that's exactly what Satan does. He goes and he curses Job He brings death to his family. He takes away all his wealth. His health goes away entirely. He brings him to utter darkness and complete despair, it appears. What do we see with Job? We see that all throughout Job, even though he's coming to a place of hopelessness and despair, he remains in conversation with God. He may accuse God, just like the psalmist in Psalm 88, but ultimately he does not flee from God. He's angry. And he doesn't speak respectfully to God. Yet in all that, he stays in God's presence. And this is the same thing we see with this psalmist, that he is angry with God. He's not bringing reverential accusations before God. He may even be sinning in this psalm. And yet in that, we see that he remains in relationship with God. He doesn't utterly, he feels like God has abandoned him, but he says, listen, I have nowhere else to go. Now, when you do that, when you do that, when all other blessings in your life but God himself is removed from your life, this makes you spiritually strong as steel. When you can say, listen, God, you can take my health, you can take my wealth, you can take my family. In fact, you have taken all those things, and yet you say, God, you are God, I have nowhere else to go. I am your servant, and I will serve you because you're God, and I'm not, and you're not bringing any blessings into my life. In fact, I don't even feel your presence. If in that moment you say, God, I'm gonna stay right here in front of you, you're a person who is made of spiritual steel. And God has done an incredible work in your life. This is why it says in Corinthians that this is what God, he is enveloping in us an eternal weight of glory in us. God does not wait our, waste our suffering, nor even our depression or our despair, but he utilizes it to change us. Now let me tell you the story of William, William Cooper and John Newton. I'm going to refer to them a couple times this morning. They, William Cooper was a great hymn writer, and he was a man who was in John Newton's congregation. They're both great hymn writers. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And they began to work together on a hymn book, a whole hymn book called The Only Hymns. But halfway through the project, William Cooper essentially went insane from his depression. His despair was, became, took over, him, overwhelmed him to such a degree that he essentially had to enter into an insane asylum because he kept trying to kill himself. And what we see is Newton, Newton became despondent about this as well. And he wrote this hymn. This hymn that's called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. In, in part, maybe he wrote it to Cooper in his depression, or maybe he also wrote it for his own soul. I hope it's going to be on the screen. I don't know. But I, I, follow along with me. I'll, I'll point out the verses. Because there's a linear progression to this. He said this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. This is his prayer, that he wants to know God more. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray.'" This is verse 2. "'And he, I trust, has answered my prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair.'" Verse 3. "'I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love-constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest.'" Instead, verse 4, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. That's his guilt and his sinfulness. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Verse 5, yea, more with his own hand. This is Psalm 88. He's accusing God. Yea, with your own hand, he seemed to to aggravate my woe, cross all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, he says, I trembling cried, Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. So what he's saying is, God says, I've answered your prayer for grace and faith in this way. I'm growing you and I'm sanctifying you. And this is the final verse. These inward trials, God says, I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Mother Teresa said, you do not know that God is all you need until God is all you have. The promise is that God is creating in us an eternal weight of glory in your suffering, yes, in your depression, in your despair. The dark night of the soul is doing something despite how you feel, despite the pointlessness that you feel in the midst of it. So God is working in us. Also, the existence of this psalm shows that God is working through us. As we noted, we know a little about human. But we still have a little hint of what his life was like. Derek Kinger says this, There's hardly a spark of hope in the psalm itself. However, the title supplies it. That little title I read at the beginning. For this supposedly God-forsaken author, we find out in First Chronicles 6 that Heman was the leader of the Kohathite guild that was set up by David of musicians and poets who wrote psalms. And from this guild come what we know as the Kohathite Psalms, one of the richest veins in the Psalter. In other words, Heman oversees the singing of God's worship, and it becomes Bible. It uses it to lead God's people in worship. Here's a man who is burdened and despondent and says, In this darkness there is no point. It is pointless. God has abandoned me. And yet we see from the perspective of eternity is that God hadn't abandoned him because God totally used him. Now know what? We have, we have the Kohathite Psalms, but this is the only psalm we have from Heman. This is a man who's a professional musician. He may have written a psalm a day. Maybe more than that. That's his profession. And yet this is the only one that has stood the test of time. Why? So that humans' cry of despair may be a blessing, may give voice to our own cries. God has used this man in his sorrow, and yes, his depression and his despair. It's consistent. William Cooper... Is a man who died in his depression. And yet, he is known for his psalms and his hymns. David Brainerd, who's known as the great American missionary to the Indians, was a man stricken by depression. Charles Spurgeon, who's known as maybe the greatest preacher in the history of English speaking peoples, is, is, was, was strapped down with depression three to four months out of the year. He could not enter the pulpit because he couldn't get out of bed. Martin Luther, the beginner of the Reformation, would have weeks where he couldn't get out of bed, and yet God used them in their despair. God knows what he is doing. I'm reading a book on Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill's life is unbelievable but in it's, it's, its victory, but also in its de- despair as well. Churchill was a man who had—he was struggled with horrible depression for much of his life. His parents were awful— It had almost nothing to do with him. He had one of his own children who committed suicide. Two more of his children drank themselves to death. And even when when he was the prime minister, he would have to stay in hotel rooms that did not have balconies because he was fearful that his despair and his depression would so overtake him that he would throw himself off the balcony. And yet, and yet, when the world was faced with the menace of the Third Reich, who is the man who said, we will stand, we will give, we will not give up, we will fight them on the seashores, we will fight them in the cities, we will fight them in the airs, and he led a whole people to stand firm in front of the world of enemy that was ahead of them. God uses our depression in order to be a blessing to minister to others. So you may not see the purpose for it now. But God consistently shows that I'm creating you an eternal weight of glory, and in fact, I'm utilizing you to create an eternal weight of glory in others. So that's the first answer, and the first way we see God's grip of grace here. But the second is this. We see the grip of God's grace in the answers to the questions. From a literary perspective, the center point of this psalm and the high point of it is the questions in verses 9 through 12. And then in verse 14. The grip of God's grace is seen in God's answer to the questions here. Look at these questions. First, he asks, God, do you do wonders for the dead? God, the departed, praise you. Is there a worship service in cemeteries, he's saying. God, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Now, to the psalmist, he's thinking, these are rhetorical questions. Of course, in his mind, the answer is no for all of these things. No, of course the dead don't worship you. Of course, of course, there's no wonders for the dead. No, your steadfast love is not known in the grave. But here's the turn in the gospel, all of these questions are answered not with the rhetorical no, it is answered with a clear and resounding yes. Yes, God, you work wonders for the dead. Yeah, He raises them from the dead. It's called the resurrection. God, you do the departed um, rise to praise you. Yes, it's called the resurrection. And when you ascend to heaven, and then when you be descend back down to earth, the dead will rise to worship you. God, is your steadfast love declared in the grave, yes, one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament says that Jesus goes and preaches in the grave. We don't, we don't know what it means necessarily, but we do know he preaches in the grave. That yes, his steadfast love is known there. And so the answer to all of these questions, at the height of his despair, God, have you abandoned me? And he he expects there the answer is yes, but the answer in the cross at this time, though, is no. No, I have not abandoned you. And the way in which the gospel answers to all our questions in in the midst of despair are answered to what Jesus has done for us. Did you see? You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' soul comes to the edge of despair, doesn't it? He weeps. You see, the psalmist has been abandoned by his friends. What happens to Jesus? His friends don't pray with him. His friends deny him, and they bail on him. The psalmist says he's experiencing darkness. Jesus experiences darkness, not only emotionally and spiritually, but at the sixth hour, what happens? The sky grows dark. The psalmist says that God has abandoned him, and yet Jesus was the one who was truly abandoned, such that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a man, Jesus, who has actually entered into the depths of despair. Jesus got the ultimate darkness that Heman thought he had gotten. He thought he, thought he got to, total darkness because he thought he had God's wrath. He thought he had God's hatred against him. But he didn't. And so if you're in the place of Heman today, the answer to you is no, no, no. Jesus got what you're feeling. You now, you only feel like God has abandoned you. Jesus actually had God abandon him. That's the truth of the matter that's engaging with, your, with the lies of your feelings. And what do we see? Not only that Jesus was abandoned, but he was abandoned unto death so that what happened? He descends into hell, the hells of our life, so that he understands them, so that he walks through them with us, and so that he can draw us through them, out of them, on the other side of this life. Psalm 139, the psalmist says this, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the place of death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day. For darkness is as light with you. Corey Tin Boom, in the heart of being in a Nazi concentration camp, said this. No matter how deep our darkness, God's love is deeper still. And yes, you have the great... Refrigerator passage, but man, may it mean something more to you this morning in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was truly abandoned so that you would only feel abandoned. That means this, listen, you may have lost your grip on God. But he has never lost his grip on you. Never. You may have lost his face, but he still sees you. Real brief, let's look at the resources of how we utilize this grace. Real, real three quick things. Because we've got to be able to take this truth and, 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 and appropriate it in our lives. First thing is this. So You've got to take advantage of the resources of God's grace. It means you take advantage of God's common care. You know, in the story of Elijah, you know, Elijah was a depressant. After he has this great conquering hero when he destroys the, 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 the idols of, of Baal and the, the priests, he runs away from Jezebel, and he goes out in the desert, and he goes to God, I wish I was dead. Now, how does God care for Elijah? He sends him food. Listen, if you're feeling despairing, maybe you should eat something. Listen, brothers and sisters, when you care for a brother or sister who's depressed and despairing, perhaps they don't need a book or your plentiful words, but maybe what they need is a really good steak, a good beer, and some Sister Schubert rolls. (laughs) That is treating some of the physical elements. Yeah, you can get depressed because you haven't eaten. Treating the physical moves beyond that, though, from the silly to actually the medical. It means you should be medically evaluated. You should be. And if medicine is available, it is advisable for you to take that medicine. Listen, some of you, some, some say, and some of you may say, that to take medicine is faithless. I would say not to take medicine is the actual faithless move. God has not simply revealed himself in the scriptures, he's revealed himself in creation. We don't have to be afraid of science. Now listen, you can get yourself jacked up with the wrong medication, so you've got to go to someone who knows what they're doing. Don't just take anything willy nilly. Let me say this: the reason why you do this is not so you don't need the gospel, but people who are depressing, who are depressed and despairing, the issue is they cannot hear the gospel. The noise in their soul is screaming so loud because of various things going on chemically within them. Sometimes, if this is an aspect that if this if, if people if this would give you a means of hearing the gospel more clearly, take medicine. Take medicine. God's given it to us as a means of graciousness to you. So also take advantage of God's community. The psalmist believes all his friends of abandonment have abandoned him or been taken from him. Now listen, this is quite possible. Maybe you really don't have any friends. Or maybe, maybe you just have a victim mentality. And in fact, when you're despairing and depressed, you actually are more apt to feel that way, that everyone is against you. And our natural response when we feel this way is actually to become recluses. To pull ourselves away. And actually in these moments of despair is the, means, is the time when you most need to be around people. You cannot separate yourself from community and God's people. A response when we feel ejected is to pull away, but we've got, it becomes a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy, right? No one loves me, so I'm pulling away. And then when people don't pursue me the way I think they ought to, oh, see, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. No one loves me. Even though you said to everybody, stay away, Listen, you got to embed yourself in community. And listen to me, not superficial community. Not superficial community. In other words, don't embed yourself in a community that just says, when everyone just says, I'm fine. You know what FINE stands for? Here's what FINE stands for. It's an acronym. FINE, FINE stands for this. Fouled up, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. That's what FINE stands for. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Superficial community is as helpful to the depressed person as eating glass. It makes life more difficult. What do we see? Even when Jesus himself was in despair, what does he do? He asked for his disciples to pray with him in the garden. Now, they stink at it. They go to sleep. He has a terrible community. And listen, you may have a terrible community. We might fall asleep on you sometimes. But stay with it. Because sometimes we might actually come through. Come through. William Cooper... He was horribly depressed as i mentioned he wrote the, the hymn there is a fountain filled with blood he wrote the hymn oh for a closer walk with jesus he tried to kill himself numerous times after cooper's death they wrote a play about the relationship between cooper and newton in which newton for a, for a time actually did bring um, cooper into his household and cared for him for many years and then actually after he was moved to a different pastorate um, wrote him letters for years. He poured out the love of grace of God and, and preached the gospel to Cooper year after year after year, speaking into his depression the truth of God's grace. But very often, Cooper couldn't hear it. And, and what we find is that even in his final days, Cooper found he, he, didn't, he couldn't believe that God was actually for him. He was a Calvinist, actually. He believed in God's persevering grace. But here's what he believed. He believed that God's electing persevering grace was for everybody else except for him. Literally, that's what he believed. That he was the one exception, he dies in that despair, but in the play, in the play, this isn't what happened in real life, but in the play, I think it ends beautifully. Newton, it shows Newton at his deathbed, and right after cooper has has expired and gone up to heaven, he says this. It says that there in the play, Newton looks up and he says, "See, I told you so. you need You need a community of people who would gather around you and preach to you the gospel, even on your deathbed, even when you don't believe it, who would be with you." Man, depressed people are hard to be around. Stay with them. And if you're the depressed person, don't push them away. Last, you've got to take advantage of the promises. Verses 9 through 12, while it's a lot of questions, it's actually the psalmist pleading God's covenant back to him. He says, "He said, God, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Steadfast love is this word Hesed, which means God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. That's what he's pleading. He's saying, God, you said you're going to be faithful to me. Where is your covenant? Plead God's promises back to him. Take advantage of them. And this, in going back and going full circle in our time this morning, this is exactly what they do in Pilgrim's Progress. They plead God's promises, and it's the means of salvation and setting them free from despair. Christian hopeful, we, we see, are, are, are sprung from the dungeon prison of the giant despair on Saturday night. After he has wept in his despair, suddenly Christian is reminded that he has a key that he was, he was given And this key can open any door. And it's the key called promise. And he takes that key and he enters it into the cell, into their locks, and it sets them free, into the prison door, and it sets them free until they are set loose to run free from from the castle of the giant despair. Preach God's promises back to yourself. Plead his promises back to him. You may even do it in an accusatory way like the psalmist does. But plead his promises anyways. Because here's the reality. Here's the promise. You may lose your grip on him. He will never, ever lose his grip on you. One last way in which God has given us grace, and that is the table. Let's go to it now. Will you pray with me? Those who are serving could come forward and help me serve the elements. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have um, been given... in seen one sign and seal of your grace to us this morning that speaks to us your gospel, the fact that we have been brought from, are, our old man is dead and we are brought up into new life, that we are part of your family. Lord, we now come to this sign of the gospel, this reminder of your work, that there is no wrath for us, that you have not abandoned us. You abandon your son so that you never have to abandon us. So God, we set aside these simple elements, this bread and this cup, and Lord, may you use them as a means of grace, these physical, visible elements. Would you use them to, to shine the light in our darkness, to put a gold and light lining around the darkness of our lives, to remind us of our future home and of the grace we have in Christ Jesus. We ask this in the name of your precious son. Amen.